Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Let me invite you, if you brought a copy of the scriptures, open with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to spend our time this morning in the first four verses. And uh, hey, if you've, if you've got a Bible that's made of print and you've got one of those cute little ribbons, you might as well park it there. We'll be here till about May. Why? Because we're kicking off a new series today entitled Jesus is Better. You may have picked up on that theme through the worship uh, set and so forth, but uh, that really is the point and the story of this book of Hebrews. I think um, I've anticipated the study of Hebrews for about a year now uh, just in preparing my heart for it. It's one of the most theologically rich, articulate books in the New Testament in my estimation because it serves to function as uh, a decoder key in some ways and a connecting bridge between the Jesus of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament. God's promise of redemption and God's fulfilled Redeemer in, this, uh, in the New Testament. And it connects those and it fills in the gaps for some who may not be as familiar with Hebraic culture or even the, uh, the way God's people were called and commanded, instructed to worship in the Old Testament. Let me say to you as we think about kicking this off here that you and I live in a pluralistic world that doesn't fear or even really give much thought to a Jesus who is one of the many ways or perhaps even a good way that a person, maybe even the best way that a person can get to God. But a Jesus who is exclusive, a Jesus who is the only way, a Jesus who is the unique and only one and only Son of God. Well, that strikes fear into people's hearts. It strikes a, a sense, a chord, if you will, with some people that would cause them to recoil. That would, the, the sense of exclusivity, exclusivity in that causes some people to push back and go, is that really possible? The God who reveals himself, as John said in, in, uh, in his gospel, where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and that there is no one who can come to the Father in any way other than by me, causes the world to turn its face against it in disdain. But the fact of the matter is, is while others may resist, Jesus calls us to exalt the fact that he is, in fact, the exclusive God. The way that all people, no matter where, who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you live, no matter what you've been told, he is the way for all peoples to be gathered to the one true and holy God. And as we look at this letter together, that's really its overarching thesis. How among all the different religions, among all the different practices, among all the different philosophies, among all the different ideologies, Jesus is better. And while the author of this letter is unknown to us, the purpose is not. We also know about this letter and it helps us understand its meaning because you and I were not the intended audience for the letter to the Hebrews. 
We, uh, we gain from it, but we're not the ones he wrote to. We know that the letter was written to those from a, a Hebrew background. And on the front row of that audience would be those who were Christian uh, Christians who had yielded their life to the fulfillment to Jesus as the Messiah and understood him as such. And, uh, and then maybe in that second row would have been some people who, while Christian, they had questions and even had considered turning back from. We see them addressed throughout the letter. And then there were some maybe in the back row, the very back row, who they had another background, a Hebrew background, and they had, been, they had heard the claims of Christ, but they had yet to yield to him. We know of this letter that it was written before the destruction of the temple, probably around uh, just before A.D. 70. And we know that, uh, that it gives us insight and information about the Hebrew background that would have been common to those who were very religious of the day. We know that the writer must have known the Apostle Paul because he addresses in there many who were in Paul's circle of influence. And all of these things help us to understand that while we're not the intended audience, we can grasp from there principles that cross into our contemporary understanding. The purpose, as we'll see together, is to instruct the reader as to why. Among many gods and philosophies and ideologies of the world, there's only one Jesus. And that he and he alone is the final word. And he is better. So we're going to begin in Hebrews 1 and in the first verse. And can I invite you, if you're able, to stand with me in honor of the Word of God. And if you're joining us from home, we're so grateful for your presence here as well. I trust you'll follow along with us as well as we read from the Word of God. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. The Bible says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Pause right there. And would you pray with me? Father, would you in these moments of our time studying the word, would you open our eyes to see and understand that this letter's not about us, even as we heard over and again, it's about you and it's about Jesus. And it's about the fact that he is better. So open our minds to see and understand that and then receive our response worthy of his name as worship help us to that end and we pray in jesus name amen and amen thank you for standing you be seated if you'd like to follow along i have a it's a pretty detailed outline that's available for you today it's available on your church app it's also available if you don't have the app you could text the word notes from your device to the number that you see on the screen we'll send you a link to it you can write it down but i'll promise you i'm talking fast today and there are a lot of things i want you to grasp out of here not a lot of scripture but a lot of points of the scripture that i want you to grab as we work our way through and i want you to notice with me three observations or three key factors that kind of set the stage as we look at the prologue to this letter as we understand its purpose as god reveals it himself i want you to notice with me first of all the god who reveals 
the God who reveals. One of the fundamental truths of Christianity, of our faith, is that God is a revealer. Our faith is not uh, the product of some philosopher's uh, thinking, but it's in fact something that God himself has revealed to us. He has fully disclosed to us everything that is necessary for you or for me to walk before him in fulfilling the, and uh, purposefully existing to, to, to experience the fulfillment of a relationship with him. That's consistent in Hebrews, but it's consistent throughout the Scriptures. Notice what Peter said about the God who reveals and about this revelation. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, as he begins that letter in verse 1, he says, Peter, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. And of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through how? The true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. The knowledge of God, the, the God who reveals has given us everything we need to flourish and he's provided all of that for you and I. And as the writer opens his letter, he seeks to show us an unbroken revelation of God that works throughout all of human history. Notice with me what he teaches us about God's revelation. First of all, that it is a personal revelation. Look at verse 1 again. It begins with the subject, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. God's not the product of interpretation. God's not uh, the musings of a devoted religious teacher. God is not the something that we gather or, or surmise based on some angelic dictation to a pseudo-savior. He personally spoke to the fathers and the prophets and now finally speaks through his son. It's a personal revelation. It's also a progressive revelation. That's the point of his statement there about portions and ways. Notice he says, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, yet in these last days has spoken to us in his son. God didn't tell everything from, with every detail from the very beginning, but piece by piece, step by step, different pieces of his revelation, different portions, different statements to the prophets, all point as directional arrows to his son, who is the culmination of God's revelation. And there are no arrows that go from him to the next one. Yes, I'm throwing shade on anyone who would say, well, I know God's word seems final, but it didn't cover those of us in North America, so we had to write a new version for y'all. Hey, listen, here's a word for that. Hogwash. There is no ongoing revelation of God with some new understanding. And those people that stand on your doorstep and claim so, listen, they're a cult, they're a lie. It's of the devil. It is not of Christ. I don't care what name they name. All of this progressive revelation begins in, port, in, in parts and pieces from days old all the way up to and culminating in Jesus in these last days. 
Because Revelation has a beginning point and it has a process. We'll look at this more in depth next week and in the weeks beyond. But take Genesis, for instance. How in the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis, God reveals how the world comes about. He displays his presence. He explains sin. He foreshadows his redemptive plan in the seed of a woman. He expresses his calling of a people to tell his story. And he prophetically reveals that his called people will consist of more than just one ethne, one ethnic line, the Jews, but will be comprised of many nations. In fact, of every tribe and every tongue and every nation in the church, including the Oguru people that we prayed for today. The Bible tells us that there will be people who will become Christ followers from even that people group. 18,000, yet not one of them, as far as we know, knows him. And yet God said that he'll raise up messengers from even among them, and he'll use you and I to help bring that about. God's revelation continued in parts and portions throughout all the history of mankind, and it culminated fully in his son. It's a personal revelation. It was a progressive revelation. And, by the way, it's a perfect revelation. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Not in these days, as though there were more days to come, but in these last days, as if this was it and that there was no other. Not as uh, he spoke to us in his Son, kind of, sort of, along the lines of, as though his son were a link in a long chain of revelation as the other world religions teach. Because you can't ignore Jesus. You just have to fit him into your story somewhere. But as the final culmination, the perfect revelation of how we are to relate to God. It is a perfect and complete revelation. He says in these last days, God's given his completed and perfect word. Perfect because in Jesus we know all that we need to know about the Father. You say, how do you know that? In John chapter 14, as Jesus told his disciples, hey, I'm going away from here. It's going to be bad. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be a tough time. Hang in there. They were anxious. How do you know? Because in John 14 verse 1, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he goes on to tell him about heaven and how he's going to prepare a place. And if he goes, he'll come back. And he says, and the way you know, they said, how, how can we know the way? He said, I'm the way. Then Philip asked him a question in verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And Jesus said, you doofus. No, that's not what he said. Verse 9, that was my translation. He said, have I been so long with you? And yet you've not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Here's what Jesus said. All that you'll ever want or need to know about the Father, you can observe in me. God, Emmanuel, God with us in the Son. We know all that we'll ever need. That's a perfect revelation. You say, well, I've got some questions. Not questions you need to know in order to respond to him, just maybe questions to satisfy the curiosity that you have in your mind. 
But you and I have everything we need to know in order to relate to God, to know Him as He is, to find our purpose, to know what He's created us for, and to fulfill that in a way that brings glory and honor to His name, even as we sang about. If God's revelation culminates in Jesus, what does that reveal to us? It's a great question. So see, not only the God who reveals, but notice secondly, the word of revelation, what God reveals to us. That word, word, is an interesting word. And John's gospel identifies for us that Jesus is, in fact, that word. And that he shares all of the attributes of God, not as a creation of God, but as God the creator himself. Remember in John's gospel, John 1, beginning in verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, the logos, the expression, the revelation, the speech, the, 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 the message of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This is God's Son is in fact God's revelation of God's person, of God's purpose for our lives, of God's promise to us, and of God's providence for us. What does God reveal to us in Jesus, in the Word of God? I'm so glad you asked. Can I show you? The writer of Hebrews gives us seven things, seven um, characteristics, seven realities that Jesus reveals for us. Notice he says, first of all, that Jesus is the appointed heir. The appointed heir. Look at verse 2. In these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus is the one who is the culmination. All that exists, all that's created, all of it exists for his purpose. So he's the one that made everything and he's the one for whom everything is made. He's the appointed heir. It all belongs to him. Paul said it this way to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1 verse 22. He says, and he, God, put all things in subjection under his Christ's feet. And gave Christ his head over all things to the church. Notice he didn't make Christ just head over the church. Or of all the church, he made Christ head over all things. And gave Christ his head to the church. That means that there is not one thing. There is not one minute minuscule. There is not one square inch under heaven over which Christ the Lord does not declare mine. Because he is the appointed heir. Those aren't my words. That's Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, who years ago reminds us that every single thing sits under the sovereign reign of God. He is the appointed heir. And secondly, he is also the creative agent. That's why in verse 2, it says, In these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. There are some that teach falsely in false religions that Jesus is the first thing that the Father created and that Jesus then went about and created everything on behalf of the Father. That's a lie. Jesus is the uncreated creator. 
He is the pre-existent God. He is equal to God in his eternality. He has no beginning. He has no end. You say, I thought he died on a cross. Did you not read the rest of the story? He rose again. Well, did you think he just showed up in Bethlehem for the first time? Friend, no. Because in Genesis 1, he was already there. He already existed. He's always existed. And he is the one who, when it says, and God said, it was Jesus who spoke. The pre-incarnate Jesus, but Jesus who spoke. He's the creative agent through whom all things were made. Jesus is thirdly, the radiance of glory. As beams of light radiate from the sun and make their way all throughout the solar system and land on our faces, the very radiance of the doxa, the glory of God, that which we sang about emanates from Christ so that we can understand glory by looking into his face, by looking at his life, by listening to him, by knowing him. We experience the radiation of the glory of God. He is the radiance of glory. Verse 3, and he is not one of the radiances. Don't you think God's glorified by false teachers that claim to be an expression of his glory? No, because he is the radiance of his glory. And the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the unique radiance, expression, emanation of the very glory of God. We understand glory because we know Christ. And oh, by the way, if that Christ lives in you, then that glory radiates from you. It's his glory through you to a world so that they can know him and respond to him. He is the radiance of glory. Fourthly, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. The exact imprint of God's nature. If I had, to, if I had two coins, I'd show you. I don't because there's a coin shortage. But if I had two coins, I'd show you that you could take a coin minted today and a coin minted in the 70s and you can hold them side by side and you'd say man those look just exactly alike that's right because there was a mold an imprinting device that mashed into the mashed into the where am I from that pressed into the softened metal that made an exact replica of the image from one to the other so that you couldn't tell the difference from the other that's the word he says look look with me verse three he says and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation, the imprint of God's nature. There's nothing about the nature of God that we don't see in Christ himself. He's the exact representation of his nature and he upholds all things by his power. Friends, he is the exact. But I wonder if he held back anything from... So I... Maybe you can relate to God another kind of sort of way. Maybe God's different than Jesus is. No! Jesus is God. And he's the, as the Bible teaches, he is the exact imprint of the very nature of the Father. Number five, he is the sustaining force 
of creation. That's what the next phrase means. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. All things? Come on, Chris. I mean, surely that's hyperbole. I mean, after all, how can you really think God holds all things together? Well, I'm not smart enough to think those things. I just read well. But here's what he said. He holds all things together. He upholds all things. When the children sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. What they mean by that is all things are upheld by the power of this Christ. He sustains all things. That means that apart from Christ, the very planets themselves which are held in orbit would cease to persist and would scatter to the ends. It means that the breath in your lungs and in my lungs would cease. It would not even be available. It would not be anything we'd know about and we would die. It means that the blood that courses through your veins, which is pumped by a muscle which keeps perfect time and runs on its own for some reason, it's all held together and provided by God. It means that we would have neither the will nor the way to even live apart from Christ. And it means that every blessed, single, solitary second of every individual's day is a gift of God's grace made possible by Christ's power in which he was upholding for you and I. That means don't tell me how bad your day is. Tell me how grateful you are for every second because as one ticks off the clock, it's another gift from a gracious God for you. He upholds all things by the power of his hands. Number six, he's the purifying sacrifice. It's an argument that the writer will expand on later, but what no act of religious devotion, what no will of personal discipline could accomplish in removing neither sin or stain, Christ did for us. Verse three. The radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of the power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down. When he made purification of sins. Well, Chris, I think as long as I do good, as long as I mean well, as long as I give something, as long as I try to make it better, then I'll get there. God will somehow forgive me. You're foolish. Here's what he said. The wages of sin is death. It's eternal separation from God and there is no amount of good that could somehow tip the scale to cause a holy God to be less holy because you want an alternate path to get in. But what you and I could not do, what no priest could ever do, what no sacrifice could ever do apart from Jesus, He did in giving His life on our behalf once and for all. And to purify, not just to give you a pass, but to purify, to cleanse you from it so that neither sin nor shame would stain you again. He is the purifying sacrifice. And number seven, he's the seated sovereign. 
the seated sovereign. Look at verse 3. Don't miss this. The last phrase, he's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. God's people, after the exodus from Egypt, and God gave the instructions of how to build the meeting place where they would meet with him. They walked around the desert and they carried all their stuff with them. There was, a, there was an altar made of bronze where they would take and offer sacrifices to God in the, in the court, the outer court there. There was by it a bronze lover. There was a, there was a system of poles and uh, and rods and curtains that separated it all from the rest of the tents. If you went inside there, there was a holy place. And inside there was a table of showbread which existed for the, for the presence of God. There was, a, there was a, a candle, a menorah that burned incessantly with a flame before God. There was an incense altar where, uh, where, where every day the priest would reload it so that the aroma of the incense would make its way up to God without ceasing. And then behind the heavy curtain, the high priest would go once a year and he would find there the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the law of God, which contained Aaron's rod, other pieces there. And in that place, on the top of that was the mercy seat. And it's the only seat in the tabernacle. Notice they didn't carry a seat for the priest because the priest would never sit down because the work was never finished. He could offer a sacrifice today but then Chris Aiken lived and he's got to offer another sacrifice the next day. And then there's Walmart and he had to offer another sacrifice the next day. And then there's, and then there's, and then there's, and then there's, there's all of the continual work of bringing sacrifices before God and offering them on behalf of the people to foreshadow this sacrifice that would one day come in Christ who would not be forced on an altar but would lay down his life and the blood of his sacrifice would cover the mercy seat once and for all. And then he sat down. Well, what about next year? No, he sat down. That's why on a... Let me see how I can say this and offend everybody. That's why on the correct cross that people are wearing on a necklace or hang on the wall it doesn't bear an image of a crucified savior it's an empty cross you know why because unlike the teachings of a church which would say that every time the church comes together christ had to be re-crucified in the mass in order to cover the sins of the people of that day Jesus' sacrifice once for all covered the sins of all humanity, all of my sins, all of your sins, all the sins of all the world, 1 John 2, 2 says. And he satisfied it and then he sat down. He sat down. He stopped laboring because the labor was complete. And he made his sacrifice available for all those who would trust in him and trust in it. By the way, where he's seated, it's not a place of rest, but it's a position of reign. In other words, Jesus didn't say, I'm wore out. I'll be wore out today after preaching, but Jesus is never worn out. 
He didn't sit down because he was tuckered out. He sat down because he had finished his work. And from that seat, he reigned over all of creation. Reigned as in ruled, as in everything that we've talked about, over every molecule, over every instance, over every circumstance, over every situation. He reigns supreme over every politician, over every political action, over every opinion. He even reigns over Facebook and Twitter. He reigns over all of that. It all exists under His rule because He is in charge of it. And oh, by the way, He hasn't moved at all. That means today he is seated right where he sat down because he's never yielded or given up that throne. He's never stepped away from it. The next time, the next time he steps up from that throne, it'll be to come and to gather his people and to bring them to where he is that they might rule with him. But he has never given up the reign from the seat that he sat down in. He is the seated sovereign. And oh, by the way, the Bible says where he's seated, he intercedes for you and I. At the right hand of the Father, the position of power and authority, He intercedes for you and I. We have access through Him and through Him alone. The God who reveals the word of His revelation, and number three, because of these things, the superior name. The name that's above every name. Look at verse 4. And he, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And we'll talk about this more next week as the writer demonstrates that Jesus is better than the angels. And oh, by the way, somebody probably needs to hear that, so make sure you come back next week. Because I know we like to talk about angels and how angels are this, that, and the other. But hey, it's not the angel, it's the Lord of angel armies that we ought to give our attention to. Again, I'll talk to you about that next week. But notice what he said about the name. He said, this Jesus inherited a better name than they. Remember, names express character. They're a reflection of nature. Uh, a, a person's constitution, their character within them. It's why oftentimes you'll see in the Bible, you'll see a name change as people would go through different stages along the way. In fact, Abram, his name was changed to Abraham. When childless Abram, God said to him, oh, but you're going to be exalted father and you will have a tribe of many nations. In fact, all the nations will fit under you. And he's like, I just settled for one. He said, no, 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 no. You're going to have all the nations. They're going to be, your name is now exalted father. His name changed. Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor of the church after he met Jesus in Acts 9 on the Damascus road. As he makes his way through his journey, his name is changed. He goes from Saul to Paul. And we know him as Paul, the one who, who wrote half the New Testament, the one who planted the churches. In fact, apart from Jesus, he was the greatest evangelist of Jesus that ever walked. We know more about Christ and about who we are in Christ by Paul than we know about from anyone else. The name change means something. And here we're told that Christ... He's not created like an angel, which is a ministering spirit, which just goes about doing what he's told to do, the bidding of the one who sends him. But 
he has a name that's superior, a name of a son and an heir. And it was given to him. That name is the superior name. And by the way, it bothered people when people would use that name. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, those who had ordered his doom, his death, forbade the even teaching of, of others in his name. It drove them nuts when people would even name the name. That's why when Peter and John are brought before them in Acts 4, and they said to him, didn't we... Here's what he says, verse 18. And when they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Why? Because you can say a whole lot of stuff and you can do a whole lot of stuff in anybody else's name and it has no power. But when you invoke the name of Jesus, friend, there's power in that name. It's a power field. It's a superior name. It's a name that's above every name. It's why Paul said to the church at Philippi, because of Christ's finished work, because of his perfect obedience, because of his humbled posture and his sacrifice on the cross on their behalf. He said in Philippians 2 verses 9 and following, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every knee, Chris. Man, I know some people, they don't even think God exists. One day, not only will they know he exists, they'll bow before him. Whose knee will bow? Do you think Hitler will bow a knee? Hitler will be just like this. Mao, just like this. Chris Aiken, just like this. And you, just like this. Every knee. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord of all. Every knee, every knee. Chris, that sounds like a pretty powerful name. It's not just a powerful name, it's the superior name. And every knee will bow before it. You and me, every sweet little grandma, every devilish despot, every single knee and every single tongue will bow and proclaim Jesus as Lord. If that's true, Chris, how do I, what should I do with that? I suggest to you today that you need to do today what you'll ultimately do in that day and bow a knee before him. You say, oh, I've done that. 612 years ago, I was at a vacation Bible school and I prayed a prayer when they told us to close our eyes and raise our hands if we prayed it. And I prayed a prayer about a knee before Jesus. Yeah, but are you still on your knees? Or did you get up and start making your own decisions? Why? Well, you know, you can't stay down there all your life. You got to get up and do something. It says who? You know you're going to spend eternity on your knees? And if you're a Christ follower, you're spending eternity now bowed before him, taking your orders from him, fulfilling his purpose and plan. The problem is for some, they got up, never got back down. And they walked away. You said, well, I've not walked away. I mean, I, I come to church pretty regular. I didn't read come to church under bow your knee. I read follow the will of the Father. I read bow before him. I read, Jesus is Lord. 
Does that result in these other? Man, I think it results in all this. It results in baptism. It results in generosity. It results in the fruit of the Spirit. It results in being around God's people. It results in proclamation of the gospel. It results in serving Him. It results in all of those things. But that's not the work of the gospel. The work of the gospel is a bowed knee before the name of Jesus. And everyone will bow a knee. Some of you just need to get back down on your knees. Because you've been in charge for far too long and then you've wondered why your life's a wreck. It's a wreck because you don't know how to drive. You're proud of your Jesus is my co-pilot bumper sticker, but it just means you're in the wrong seat. Quit bragging about what's wrong with you. Get out and let him drive. And then there's some that would say, Chris, that, I've heard that, but I've never, I've never really done that. I'm thinking about it. Hey, friend, let me ask you. If you know you're going to do it, and you hear you ought to do it, and you hear if you do it that the very power of the name of Jesus will work in and through you to make you look like him, what's keeping you from doing it? Some would, if they were honest, would say, I've, I've accepted that to be true for some, but not for the stuff I've done. My sin, my shame, it's so great. I hear you. But who are you to say that your sin and shame is greater than the sacrifice of a seated sovereign who purified from all sin, who answered the question, who paid the debt, who satisfied judgment and said, bow before me. Who are you to say that you can't do what he commanded you to do? In fact, wouldn't it make sense that every time you felt the urge that there'd be a whispered voice in your ear that goes, you're not worthy of that. Well, let me ask you, do you think it's the one that called you to bow or the one who hopes you'll never bow and that you'll spend eternity with him in the lake of fire? separated for eternity from the love of God. See, friends, here's what he's called you to, to bow. It's the only worthy response. You'll either bow before him now and hear him one day say, Arise, child. I know you. Enter into your reward. Or you'll hear him say, arise and depart from me, for I never knew you. But you will bow, and you will stand before him. Would you bow with me? Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. 
If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.